Welcome to the Picture of Wealth, a podcast all about living more of your life now, yet being responsible for your future. Lifestyle experimenter, wealth scientist, and financial coach Dustin Service shares life hacks, wealth tips, and interviews successful entrepreneurs on how they're thriving in happiness, purpose, and prosperity. I'm excited to present this podcast today. I'm sitting here with Tom Deans, author of Every Family Business and Willing Wisdom, and much more than just an author. I've got to know Tom over the years, and he's got a very exciting story and a great message to share about family business, the ins and outs of family business, and how to glean more of your life you know, now and sort of give you that clarity for your future and Tom, you know, thank you very much for being on the on the show today. Well, Dustin, great to join you. It's uh, as you know, it is a subject that I never tire speaking about. It is a, it's actually I think one of the most complex subjects transitioning a, a business, especially a family business. I never tire of this conversation. It is just constantly evolving, and no one has the full answer. And I think that's. It's a little bit like chasing rainbows. It's it's a really complex and emotionally rife subject. W- would you say cuz you know I often have clients ask you know where and again may, I'm going to intro you I'm going to intro you properly where you know we got to back up a minute. So before we get into that we're going to talk about that. We we have to set the stage of where this passion for family business actually came from. You again you know, had a family business and, you know, went through a transition and it, it had a certain outcome. I, I, I think we should back up and, and unpack that for a few minutes about what, where is this passion for helping business owners and family business figure out their shit per se? Yeah. So I, I joined our family business quite late. So I was, I was 37 years old when I joined uh, the business that my father started in 1973. So that was 1999. I'm 37. He, he hires me. I'm CEO for eight years before we, before we exit. And I've got to tell you, it was just the most wild ride for eight years. Uh, learning the business. I mean, truly learning the business, learning leadership skills. And then, and then going through that exit and I'll, we can talk. We could talk chapter and verse about what led to that <laughs> that decision. But really, from a place of gratitude, um, having sold that business successfully, having done something that so few family businesses do, I know the data, and it was like just reflecting on that and knowing that I survived it. I mean, it was really survival. It, these are incredibly complex organizations. When you mix family and money and business, uh, it, it is like a Molotov cocktail. And, <laughs> and there's no playbook. There's no handbook that kind of you can pick up and simply read and go, oh, if I do one, two, three, I'm going to be fantastic. This, it just doesn't work that way. So many moving parts, so many emotions, so much to learn, so much to go wrong. Stakes are incredibly high because families hoard their wealth in these operating businesses, right? Yeah, you could yeah. not design uh, a bigger, more explosive, ticking time bomb. <laughs> so, did, so you, did you come up with this idea to you know map out a plan every year, or how how did you successfully get through that quagmire? 
Well, this is the this is a really great question because it's really where I a lot of people think, my God, Dr. Deans is a genius. Well, the reality the reality is everything I write about and talk about is, is what I experience. And what I experienced was a series of conversations guided by a series of questions that weren't even mine. They were my father and grandfather's questions. These, these are questions that helped us, even before I stepped into the business, understand that by joining the family business, it wasn't like winning the lottery. Like all I had to do is just show up with a pulse and wait for someone to die and then I'll get it for free. Like, uh, 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 uh. not in our family. Like, Does anybody expect that in this day and age? Are you kidding? <laughs> <laughs> there is so many business, family businesses where the founders especially invite their kids into the business and they have no idea what the hell they've just done. They have set in motion something that is so potentially explosive, so dangerous, so easy to start, difficult to manage, but really hard to transition in a way that protects wealth and family relationships and feel good about yourselves and your family. What, I don't know if you see this, but I, like that place of intention about why would they actually bring their kids into the family business? What do they usually say? They're, they're born out of love. Like really, we invite our kids into the business because we, we love our kids. And we, we make a, a fatal assumption that they're going to love it as much as we love our businesses. You're a founder. I'm a founder yeah. now. I love my business. The likelihood that our kids love our businesses the way founders who invented it, created it out of nothing, except their ingenuity, their time, their creativity. The idea that if the next gen will love it without having created it themselves, it's, it's really tiny. It's a tiny percentage of next gens who take that business and really pour themselves into it and then also have the freedom and the permission to change it and innovate it and take it a long way away from the original founder's vision. <laughs> so what you then have are a lot of next gens who are like uh, caretakers. They're like, um, I don't know, they're like they're managing some kind of legacy project, which of course you and I both know it's fatal. Yeah. Well, we got, I've got files on my desk right now that uh, seniors making good income. The economy's good. Why do I want to sell? Wanted to sell five years ago, but then there was no buyers. But it's still a big enough nut that the junior can't afford to buy it. So now you're left with a situation where seniors just getting profits of the business anyway. Well, he's getting those anyway. So that combined with what you just said about the ideas that you know, hey, we we've been doing it like this for 20 years, Miss Mrs. Smith or Mr. Smith. I think we should maybe go on to emails. Like maybe email would be better than, you know, the phone or fax. No, no, this is how I got successful. And yeah. then it's just friction, friction, friction. And, th- and there it is, that little idea that you just touched on, which is, hey, listen, don't tell me how to run my business. I have made a lot of money doing it a particular way. And so what has worked in the past will work in the future. I mean, how can you fault that logic? Yeah. Except it's faulty logic. It is deeply <laughs> faulty. I mean, the most successful business owners are actively dismantling their business model voluntarily before the market does it to them. And they don't talk about it. They do it. They do it viscerally. They know in their, and I remember my father talking about this. I remember my father talking about his very first product line had 
phenomenal gross margins, 25, 30, 35% gross margins in manufacturing. If you're making 25, 35% gross margins, you got a big problem. Where to stuff the cash? Like it's just ridiculous how much money you're making. But when he was in that space, making those kinds of margins on some of his product lines, he was, he was deeply uncomfortable. Mm. He's like, oh my, this is, this is not sustainable for a couple of reasons. Our competitors are going to figure out that we're making a lot of money and they're going to want to participate in this. So we're, we are going to be attracting competition. And so what is next? How can we change the model, add different product lines, add distribution, like whatever, but sitting back and just riding the same pony, the same product, the same service for 25, 30, 35 years, dream on. It ain't going to happen. What, what was the, and I've never, you and I have known each other for a while, but I've never actually heard the story, like the plastics, it's a plastic manufacturer it was, right? So what was the, what was the story there? And you can decide how much detail you go into about like the size of it, the employees, like all, like the moving parts that you were overseeing. Yeah. So a couple of hundred employees, we had planted our main manufacturing facility in Ontario, another distribution facility down in St. Louis, uh, but selling globally. Um, when I started that business, we had three raw material suppliers and we had hundreds of customers. Uh, when we, when we sold eight years later in 2007, February 8th, 2007, it's funny how we remember great dates in history. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's a good year to sell something. (laughs) Oh my God. It was the best day of my life. It was fantastic. And I'll tell you why. We'll talk about how my father and I worked collaboratively to to explore and get that exit nailed down. But during those eight years, we moved really primarily to one supplier, global supplier, huge consolidation among our customers, our clients. Like we were like the luncheon meet between suppliers consolidating and customers consolidating. And, and it, it just, it didn't feel like a business cycle. It didn't feel like, oh, you know, we're, we're going through this rapid expansion and then there'll be maybe a recession and we'll dip a bit, but we'll come out of that and we'll grow again. It, it was different. I, I can only describe it as it felt like a fundamental restructuring of, of Canadian manufacturing. And as I look back 20 years from the day that I joined, I was 1999, a little over 20 years, I can see that we were right. Like Canadian manufacturing, yeah. it, it, is, it is in decline. There is no conversation about it coming back, which is not to say there aren't great Canadian manufacturers. There are. And if there are in business, they, they deserve to be here. But boy, it was an up and has been a 20-year uphill battle, starting really in 2002 with the rapid appreciation of the Canadian dollar moving from 65 to 73 cents in one year. 65 cents to 72 cents in one year. So just to put that in perspective, when we would sell plastic in the U.S., someone would pay us a dollar, a U.S. dollar. We would go to our bank. You visited my office. You visited my home. You know where I live. Right across the street where we had restaurant was uh, had lunch was yeah. our bank. Okay. So we would take that U.S. dollar, drop it in to that U.S. into that into our bank account, and we get a dollar sixty-five Canadian. Oh. <laughs> wow! And in the space, in the space of twelve months, we would deposit that one U.S. dollar and then get a dollar thirty. Right. Poof. Yeah. Hadn't done anything wrong. Hadn't 
hadn't made bad decisions, poor management decision, just boom, vapor, changed business model. Not only were our U.S. sales depreciated, our U.S. inventory, our U.S. receivables, everything declined in value overnight. And I remember, you know, meeting with my team and thinking, just doing quick, rough math. And every time the dollar appreciated one penny, we had to eliminate five people from our organization. Wow. Five. So the dollar would go up, five people, five people, five people, five people, five people, five people. And you still have to generate the same number of pounds of plastic, high qu- improve your, your, your quality. It was just an incredibly exhausting, difficult ride. So when I say that when we sold on February 2007, and it was the greatest day of my life, it really wasn't just because it was, it was just the end of a really exhausting period. It was, we actually had phenomenal results, fun, phenomenal financial results. We turned that organization, we, we rode that productivity improvement crest right to the finish line and handed a really great business to the new owners who had, oh my gosh, they're a billion dollar company. They had they had global reach. They were a competitor. They had they knew our business, knew our customers, and like it was just like win win. So this idea that an exit has to be the seller like mops the floor with the you know with the buyer like you know win <laughs> lose, not at all. Like really great, well timed, well negotiated, well run businesses can really create win wins. Uh, yeah. It was fine. In the Canadian plastic industry, you either had to get really big really quick or you had to suck it up, detach from your emotions, and sell to one of those aggregators. But, right. but those who hung on and tried to, to be what they were 20 years, for the last 20 or 30 years, right where we started the conversation, let's just, this is what I've always done for 20 years, you were done. Done like dead. Yeah. Over and so it- out. In your dad's case, so you know, you've seen me speak, you've seen me talk about my fictitious character Harv, who, you know, sacrifices evenings, weekends, reinvests everything back into his business to then be more happy than the average person at 60 when he sells his business for the most amount of money and then he can be happy. So in your dad's case, was he living the best he could, or you think during his life or was he very business, 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 and then just waiting for that check or looking forward to it to then live? He, he's, uh, he was an interest, as was my grandfather, very interesting, very different, I think, from the average founder. So he had, he had interests. He explored okay. outside interests, outside the business, which is why, and I tell this story, when I joined in 99 and I walked in, he walked out. How do you do that? <laughs> yeah. He read the e-myth. <laughs> yeah. He, he said, like, he had a sales organization. He had a finance person. He had a, an operations VP. He always built his businesses, attracting good people, paying them well. We were a profit-sharing company. He had this innate ability to let go. And that's how the business scaled. But that also is what helped him really have a successful exit. Right. Because he was kind of, he, he, he was, the business wasn't him. He wasn't all wrapped up emotionally or personally. His identity wasn't, you know, so intricately tied to the, to the business. 
He didn't practice his philanthropy through the business. Like that was separate. That was all personal. And, and I just think that that was, I didn't know that. I thought everyone did it that way. I, it was really subsequent to selling the business, writing the book, becoming a speaker, you know, a thousand page speeches in 26 countries, meaning literally tens of thousands of, bu- of business owners and finding out that in fact, that he's a, a minority. Absolute yeah. minority. Most business owners, the sale of the business metaphorically represents their death, which is why they don't. It's why 20% sell. Most of the business owners die at their desk. Right. Literally. It's an identity like they piece. Them, they take them out of their office in a box. So what, what do you think? Like I, I study this a lot where you've got, you know, when you're a young person, young kid, young adult, you've got all these passions, interests, curious. And then over time, it just sort of gets down to, you know, and what I would say is common in, in, in maybe this, the 60 to 75 year old generation, you got the business, you got a couple friends. And again, maybe I'm biased because I'm 40 and haven't been beat up enough in life yet. But how does, how does someone maintain interest and curiosity in other things when they're so focused on the business? I think it takes great wisdom and introspection because if, if, if a business owner is waiting for someone to come through the door and say, hey, Larry, hey, Mary, um, you need to step away from your business. It's high time you take care of yourself, exercise better, more, eat better, travel more, learn the violin, teach an MBA course, uh, learn the violin. Like, it doesn't matter. Like, yeah. people, that, is not, that is not what's, ha- what's happening. People are, people are coming through the door and saying the opposite. Hey, Larry, my gosh, you... I can't believe how much your business has grown in the last 10 years. Uh, you guys are slamming it. Uh, like more is more. Yeah. And, and, I, and I just think it is, there's a lot of business owners who get into their late 50s and 60s and then they're full of regret. Like they don't, even, they don't know their kids. They spent way more time on their business than their family. Yeah. Uh, they're out of shape. They're, they're not healthy. Uh, all, all that stuff. World, all that takes, stuff. It takes intention. You know, that's the word that I thought of when you kind of rattled off that list is like, it takes intentionally thinking, I'm not going to do, I, well, what am I going to do? And, and getting to it sooner is something that we believe that needs to be addressed and, and working on your mind as much as you work on your, your business. Because if you're not paying attention to it time, 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 and then it becomes ingrained that that's just the way it is. Yep. And then you got, you got the only thing left is to hold on to that. Oh, I'm going to retire, and then I'm going to be so happy because I'm going to have a bunch of money. But what what was in in your sort of journey? What was like? Did your dad ask you if you want to buy it? Yeah, before and, I joined, and, I and how buying, I was buying it before I joined. Well, so so I've read your book, and so I yeah. I just can't wait to hear this part. So. I know you have your, you've got 12 questions and I'm not going to ruin the secret sauce for, for listeners because you can get the book, but in your book, there's 12 questions. And, but was there like one main question that he asked you early on that, that set the stage here? Yeah, it's a great question. And I will share my secret sauce because it's a really okay. important point that I want to make. All people appreciate See, When I was that. a manufacturer, you know how we made money? How? By keeping our process proprietary, by keeping our manufacturing methodology secret, by extracting discounts from suppliers and employees and everyone around us, it was about taking. Yeah. So when I, when we sell 
February 2007, I had no idea the, the personal toll that that mindset had exacted. So what do I do? I have no idea what led me to write this book and then promptly give it a, give away my, look, I'm attending this, I'm, I'm here today, I'm telling you exactly what I believe and how our family over the course of three generations have done what my father and I did, right? It's not the, we weren't the first generation to build a business and sell it and then transition wealth. So I don't know what led me in 2007 to just give everything away, give it away. <laughs> Media interviews, uh, print journalist interview. Like I just gave it away. And you know what happened? I never made so much money. I never yeah. sold so many books in my life. It's the best business and most profitable business of four generations of our family, this business that I've got right now. And it's yeah. just, it's a completely inversion, complete inversion of the business model. So oh, I to answer your question, it's question number two and three out of the 12 questions, which is question number three is ask, my father's asking me, are you prepared to risk capital to buy this business with the view of acquiring control? Yes or no? Yes or not? Well, that's a great question, Dad. Let me get back to you in a couple of years. Uh, kinda, maybe. No, not in our family. Are you a buyer? Yes or no? And if the answer is yes, one of the other questions that comes along is that purchase of those, of those voting shares is going to be at full market value based on a third party valuation. No haircuts, no discounts for family. You want this business, we're, you're gonna risk your capital to buy it because you believe that through your own talent and God-given gifts, you can grow this business and make money. Yeah. Anything other than that is just a family legacy project. It's just um, it's a toxic, dangerous idea. So in so 37 or 38, so then eight years, 46, 47, you're now uh, reinventing yourself. Yeah. Was your approach different uh, to day-to-day -day life or were you still the same old, you know, hardworking, long hours? I'm trying to think of that, the age of your kids. Cause that, that's a struggle for lots of people. It's like how, how hard, I know that if I'm going to be successful, I need to work hard, but no one's ever told me or showed me how hard. So the default is, well, just as hard as I can possibly work. So I, I like the analogy of like, you know, if you could, if you're making 500 grand a year now, and I, I always talk about this podcast, or if you could make 300 and work four days a week, like which, which one is enough for you? Some people I have come across that say, well, more, there's never enough because I, I spend lots of people, the light bulb turns on. So I'm, I want to put a, go us back to, you know, Tom 47 and what you're thinking about how you're going to map out your life. Cause I know you're a planner. Yeah, so I think the big difference, well, the quick answer is, yeah, I, I kept on working really hard. Okay. But I worked different. Mm. I would work when my kids would go to bed. I had more flexibility. I, I didn't have to go into an office and a manufacturing facility. And there wasn't all the, we were 24-hour operations, seven days a week, just pounding it out. Like, phone's always going. Like, this, there was, it was just way more, way more flexibility. I worked super, super hard. I thought it was really important for our, you know, even for our kids to see that even after a liquidity event, you know, there's more to work than making money. I mean, there was, now there was deep purpose. Mm -hmm. Now I'm like, oh my, 
Because you have to remember, this is February 2007. This is literally three days before the world blows up with the credit crisis and the Great Depression. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, how did we how do we do this? How do we know this was coming? Yeah. Well, we didn't. It was dumb luck. We're not that smart. And I was really, really writing from a, from a place of gratitude. And that's, I think, when I go back and read Every Family's Business and I read the way it was written uh, and the rawness of the words and the ideas and the, I just think that that, that was really, I was so, there was so much gratitude. We, were, we could have been completely destroyed. Yeah. I, I think, uh, you know, it's, it's good that you brought that up because a lot of times success stories are usually born out of some sort of uh, defeat or some sort of obstacle where the person down and out rises up from the ashes and, you know, it's, it's like, okay, well, a lot of people aren't, they don't suffer that huge into the ashes moment. They're successful, but maybe they've plateaued, you know, so to see you take it from a pro- approach of gratitude and create, you know, a, a, a great piece is quite inspiring. Um, I'm speaking from my own experience because it's, it's I see it uh, all the time. What what can you say about the you know the name of this podcast is the picture of wealth. So for you, you know what does the picture of wealth mean, or what you know what is your description of wealth, or how I ask it in other things is you know think of the five richest people that you know. Are they the five wealthiest people on the same list? I think they're different people. I I think what happened to me after the liquidity event is that I really understood that the the very first thing that I wanted to purchase was time. The time to be creative, the time to, you know, really be, you got to remember, it's easy to write honest books when you don't have to worry about your next paycheck, right. Coming in two weeks. Like I, so like, I'm not, I'm not naive. And I really, I really always like to make this point to new, new time authors who feel like they have to, you know, write a book and try to sell a million copies. And that's really hard to do. If if you need the income, I didn't need the income. I, I wrote this book with the idea of I sold five copies, 5 million copies let the world decide. But I'll tell you, this is not a balanced book. It is a deeply biased, I call it a one-handed book. So it doesn't go, on the one hand, you can do this. On the other hand, you can do that. It doesn't, it, it, it doesn't do that. It says, on the one hand, you should do this. Because if you do this on the other hand, you are going to blow your family up. And so I think that book, when I read it, go back and read it, it was written from, from someone who really didn't give a shit what readers thought. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why it's sold so well, because it's just, it's not pandering. It's not a pandering book. It's a, it's a biased book that, yeah. that, of course, no one had written. No one. <laughs> can you imagine if someone doesn't want to spend the twenty five ninety five and buy the book? Then. Save your $25 because this is what it says. Don't give your business to your kid for free. If they want it, they need to buy it. There, save your 25 bucks. Yeah, well, well, there's a, oh man, that's, you're uh, undershooting it. But that's, there's a lot of, uh, again, a, a, a shameless plug for the book. And no, Tom didn't pay me to say this, is it's a story. It's a digestible, easy to read story 
about you know two business owners sharing experience about one does it right, one does it maybe not so right. And uh, I remember reading it you know many years ago and uh, and was excited and, and fortunate enough to bring you out to Kelowna and and speak uh, to a great group of business owners that raised a lot of questions. And in the room, you know in that room we had about 80, 85 people half in the younger generation half. So it was either father and son, mother, daughter. What, what could you do to help the younger generation in wrapping their head around how to bring up the conversation with the older generation yeah. in a constructive way when they feel like they're beating their head against the wall and then how to make that big decision to pull the chute and go start your own firm? Yeah. So if, if, you know, if the book does one thing, it just, it really helps that younger generation start a conversation. They can, they can read the book themselves, give a copy to their parents and say, I read this. It's a different book. It's got a different message, but you need to read it. And we need to do the 12 questions in this book, because if we don't, one of two things is going to, a couple of things are going to happen. One, you're not going to relinquish control. You're going to be in your 80s and I'm going to be in my 60s, still being frustrated and angry and disappointed that I don't have full control. Or two, I'm going to leave and I'm going to leave you high and dry. And that doesn't serve you, doesn't serve me, and it doesn't serve our family. So the book is just a conversation starter. The, look, the book has 12 questions. It has no answers. Mm -hmm. it, it doesn't pretend to have the answers. The answers to the 12 questions reside somewhere in that space in the relationship between two people, father and daughter, mother and son, father and daughter, whatever combination of owner and next gen. And it just helps start that conversation and provide some structure and form around how that business will transition, either inside the family at full market value or to someone else. That's it. That's all. No, I, I really enjoyed it. And I, I know that lots of people uh, will. So what, where, where do you spend your time? Like, where do you get your balance away from the work or where do you get your space? So, um, you know, I know that you and I, just before we went, uh, we went live, we, uh, we were talking about, you know, as you know, I'm a, I'm a full-time professional speaker, which is my gentle way of saying, uh, if you read my book and you want me to help you with your family, yeah, definitely do not call me because I, <laughs> I love that part. I am not a consultant. Uh, I'm a thought leader in the truest sense of the word. I'm a, what the French would call a provocateur. I, I start problems. I start messes. <laughs> <laughs> I really rely on people like yourself, advisors, to clean up the mess that I, that I create. Uh, and I know you're good at it because I know that if, if, if someone doesn't step in and clean up the mess that I create, then the mess gets bigger and there's more zeros and, and more wealth at risk. So I, I look, I'm a speaker, I travel, but I live in a forest. I live in the middle of a 17 acre forest in beautiful Hockley Valley, north of Toronto. I am an introvert. I write a lot. Um, but I, but I really rely on a lot of physical activity, whether it's cutting trails through my property, playing squash, uh, playing lots of golf. I'm, I'm a competitor. I love competitive sports. And, um, and so those things, along with my dogs, we've just added a Domerman, by the way, a new Domerman <laughs> to the pack. Um, my wife travels with me when I'm on the road. Uh, it is a phenomenal way to spend the last chapter of my professional career. And I will be doing this a long time. I think when anyone can, 
marry their purpose with their with their profits and their passion. What a great gig to fly around to Lebanon and Israel and Johannesburg and Kuala Lumpur to be paid to speak and share a universal message. It, it's global. Family businesses are everywhere. Uh, I am so grateful that I took that one little risk and, and took 30 days of my life to write a book that I thought no one would buy. Yeah, no, it is uh, it is a great piece. And uh, you've also built Willing Wisdom, which is dovetails into one of the things I always joke with clients is I don't get paid to do wills, but it's probably one of the best uh, pieces of the financial plan to get. And most people find it boring. It can be a, you know, a very simple document, but, you know, like give me the essence of that, of that book. Um, because yeah. I've read it and, and know the, the gist and the willing wisdom index, but you know, what are the stats on people with wills and the situation there? Well, the state of affairs of, of Canadian estate planning is, is, is appalling. It's embarrassing actually. Um, 12 and a half million Canadian adults do not have a legal will. It is a shit show. It is a train wreck waiting to happen. And I just think we've been led to believe that a will is really about other people getting our stuff. So what's the urgency, right? Let, let, let our family figure that out. Um, and it is just one of the most destructive, consequential um, things that people can do is leave their family with that immutable idea that they just didn't give a damn enough to spend, oh, I don't know, a shocking $500 to, to draft a document that will bring clarity and certainty and harmony and smoothness to someone's final um, chapter of their life. And I just think, wow, what is going on in this country? And that's why I wrote Will and Wisdom. It really was born out of a lot of questions that I was getting from my audiences after the first book. Right. So a lot of business owners were putting up their hand and saying, you know, I have a great business that's worth about eight million dollars, but I don't have a will. What do you think I should put in my will? Who do you think I should leave the business to? Should I leave cash to my daughter and the business to my son? Like I was getting all sorts of different. It was funny how it was always coming back to the will. And I thought I got to do a lot more research on this subject because a lot of the questions I couldn't answer. And I, I I interviewed hundreds of lawyers lots of business owners, and I'm super proud of Willing Wisdom. It is a, an interesting book that takes estate planning and puts the self-interest into it that mm-hmm. says, basically, if you don't have a will, you're a complete loser. You're a complete doofus. Because <laughs> yeah. if you don't have a will, you don't have a financial power of attorney, and you don't have a healthcare directive. So there's more to estate planning than just dying. Estate planning is actually about the living. So if you don't have those documents in place, when you're old and you've got dementia, your family can't help you. You're yeah. an idiot. You're a complete moron that you haven't spent $500 to help your family help you. What is wrong with you? Yeah. And well, you've so made it. I have given up on lawyers. Seriously. <laughs> I seriously have just given up on lawyers. To, they just don't. First of all, they think advertising is beneath them. And they'll point to professional rules and guidelines that prevents them from marketing their services because marketing and advertising is just, uh, oh, it's just dirty, right? Yeah. Although you will notice that there are billboards in Kelowna for, you know, personal injury lawyers. 
You ever see a billboard in Kelowna for, please drop by our office and we'll help you uh, write a will? You'll never see it. What is going on with, what's with that? (laughs) I don't know. There's some sort of sociological study probably for that. Well, maybe the cynic would argue, not me, but maybe a cynic would argue that lawyers are making way more money um, getting kids all fired up to sue their brothers and sisters when there's no will or fighting over, you know, the cottage or the business. Like maybe they're making more money litigating than they are writing wills. I don't know. Yeah. Who knows? I spit that, I'll just put that out there. <laughs> maybe there, there's so many people coming in for wills. They don't need to advertise. Kelowna uh, <laughs> a micro, it's a... Okay, uh, in the real estate world, Kelowna is uh, an anomaly, or people say it's, uh, I can't remember the other term, but you know, it never goes down here. Oh, no. no. <laughs> never go down. Never go, nothing ever goes down. Things just go up in value. That's right. Let's, let's do some quick math. What's, okay. the, uh, what's, the, what's the population? We'll do some general numbers, but what's the general population of Kelowna? And area, maybe like 180. Okay, let's call it 200,000, okay? Okay. With the surrounding area. Sure. Okay. Take that number times 80%. Okay, what so 160. 160,000 people in Kelowna are adults. Okay. Are you ready for this? Within 15 minute drive of where you're sitting right now, 80,000 people don't have a will. Unreal. That's <laughs> 80,000, including half the business owners in Kelowna. Right. Do you know how much money the lawyers are going to make? cleaning up the mess that has been left. And you think that family members, when someone dies in test state, that's the legal word when someone dies without a will. Okay. Do you know how much, how much longer it is going to take for the family to administer that estate? Have a I want you to tell us because it's a, it's a train wreck. It's, it's, it's alarming. It's pathetic. So when you, when you, when that happens, there's, they appoint an administrator just for any listener who doesn't know that you pass away without a will. It's the government, correct me if I'm wrong, steps in and says, we need to appoint an appropriate party, which they call an administrator, of which you don't get to choose who that is. And that person then basically tries to follow the letter of the law and divvy things up. So again, on a simple two spouses, parents are already passed away, no kids, no dog, no house, pretty simple. But it's not simple when there's more parts involved and you can't get into a bank account that's not yours. You can't get investments. You know, maybe COVID's happening and the market's crashing. You can't sell them to get out before it crashes. There's just well, how, a multitude of things that and that and then the family says to the public administrator who's been appointed by the courts, "Hey, um, mom and dad keep on like eighty dollar keeps coming out of their account to pay their Rogers phone bill. Could you <laughs> could you cancel that? Because obviously there's no one using the phone. Dad's dead." And it was like the public minister's like, yeah, I'll get to it. $80, $80, $80, $80, $80, $80. Times all the subscriptions. Yeah. I never oh, it just, and then people are going, boy, that's pretty sad that dad didn't spend 500 bucks and get a will so that one of us could have been appointed executor or we could have select, he could have, we all would have known who the executor is. They would have been moving on this real quick. Um, yeah. And everyone, of course, thinks that they're going to get a check like within weeks. Good luck. No, it's, uh, it's, no, it's a mess. So Tom, thank you uh, very much. Is there anything else that you would love to share with, you know, the, the, the reader or the listeners of the Picture Wealth podcast? Well, we've covered a ton of ground. 
I would say, listen, um, you, I mean, you've talked about my book. I know you're writing a book and I know what your book is about and I love your message and it's contrarian and it's important. Yeah. And there will be some people who disagree with you. You're doing what I suggest. I, I really love, I can't wait for your book. Um, so listen, I don't know when it's coming out, but it can't come out fast enough. There's a lot of people who are sitting on outrageous amounts of savings and they are not living. Yeah. Uh, my final comment would be, we all know people who work in acute care. Our daughter's a nurse at sick kids. We know doctors, anyone who has spent any time with people who are dying, they are not talking about why they should have sold Nortel earlier. They yeah. are not talking about money. You know what they're talking about? They're talking about their relationships with their kids, uh, how they wish they had taken more vacation, why they didn't learn some musical instrument, or if they could have only got a hole in one, like life would have been more complete. <laughs> they are not talking about, no one talks about money. When, yeah. when you get down to the short strokes and the last breaths, it is a great place to start our financial planning by looking at our death and looking at our last chapter and looking at what really matters. And it always comes back to family. I did a, uh, a mini pod on a book called The Five Regrets of Dying written by Brony Ware. Have you ever heard of that? I book? have. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, she talks about a few of those things. And then the number five is I wish I let myself be happier. And the expectations that we put on ourselves, especially as successful entrepreneurs, the goal, you know, you're groomed. Well, you know, I was, you know, first it's survival, then it's sort of sustainable, then it's success, and then it's what? And, you know, that sort of revenue increase, goals, 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 checking them off, it misses big time on values. And so, you know, that comes back, you know, to expectations of yourself and that's, there is a whole other podcast on that, but uh, I appreciate our time, Tom. And where can people find more information on your material? Yeah, super easy. Um, the title of my books are my websites. So everyfamiliesbusiness.com and willingwisdom.com. Perfect. Well, I'm sure uh, you'll get a few hits on that. And also the one thing that we didn't talk about that I use in my practice is the Willing Wisdom Index, which is it couples on with the book. But it is a simple survey that you just fill out a few questions and it's an estate readiness survey. It gives you a nice report card on how well you're doing in your tax, governance, you know, healthcare, if you're almost dead, dead. Uh, and then to make, you know, so it gives you A plus to C minus or D, I can't remember how low it goes. I definitely had some C minuses at the start when the first time I did it. And then not only does it do that, it has a one page with a to-do list. And that to-do list is simple things like give a copy of your will to you know, the executor or to you know, your, your parent or a child. And uh, you know, one of the things that we didn't talk about that I always love in your presentations, do you recommend someone show their will to their kids? Oh, oh my gosh. Absolutely. <laughs> Why are we keeping our estate plan secret? Listen, unlike wine, it doesn't get better with time. Yeah. If, we, if we get hit by a bus tomorrow, don't you want your beneficiaries to be prepared? Don't we want to have these conversations? Why do we want to thrust wealth onto beneficiaries as a surprise? I, I just don't get it. So if there is a contrarian idea in willing wisdom, 
one that people read the book and they go, oh, oh wow, that, I was not expecting that. That is it right there. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Uh, well, you pulled your own will out at, uh, at our presentation. I think the crowd, uh, it was your actual copy in your briefcase. And I don't know if you have it, I'm but uh, here. <laughs> there it is. I, I, I hook, look, folks, if you believe that if you talk about a will, write a will, sign a will, and then hold it, that you will die. Yeah. Look, I'm still here. <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks. Thanks a lot, Tom. And I look forward, I'm sure we got lots to riff on uh, at another podcast, but thanks again for seeing it today and chatting. Absolutely, Dustin. Always fun. Cheers. If you found this episode valuable, share it with a friend. If you found this episode super valuable, leave us a review on iTunes. It will help us continue to bring you top quality content. For more information on anything discussed on this show, visit www.servicewealth.com. That's service spelled S-E-R-V-I-S-S. Any investment topics covered on the show are not investment recommendations, and you should seek professional advice before making any investment decisions. This show was produced by Podigy Podcasts. Thanks for listening.